0: This is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. With Rob Brown and Martin
1: Bissett. How you are listening to the Accounting Influencers Podcast. I'm Rob Brown and along with your co-host Martin Bissett, we give you as accounting practitioners, CPAs, accountants, bookkeepers and the fintech People that serve them, sell to them, sell through them. We give you critical insights, best practice, expert interviews, market intelligence, practical here's what works, tips, and occasional rants on the accounting and fintech world. The audience is accountants, CPAs, together with the networks, associations, vendors, and influencers who lead them, serve them, work with them. The full show goes live every Monday with daily segments featuring the news, special guest interviews rants and practical here's what works Sessions so to stay informed to stay current and even gain an edge in the accounting fintech world this is your commercial podcast of choice thank you for joining us and let's get on with the show it's the news here on the accounting influencer podcast this is where we pick out things that we've seen and not just relate to you what's going on but give you the implications for you as an accounting practitioner martin what's caught your eye this week
2: Oh, I think we're probably bending the rules as to what constitutes news these days. This is this is a,
1: well insights. Let's call it insights. Things they need to know.
2: Yeah, this this is a, this is a release um, from Smart Vault, uh, written by Alexandra Hater uh, at, at Smart Vault. And in the in its visual representation, guys, it takes the uh, the form of an infographic. But it's the top ten accounting practice priorities. Top ten accounting practice priorities. And what we're going to do here, guys, we're going to give you the news as well. So what they're suggesting are the top 10. And we're going to then just come back and focus on one or two of them that have really caught our eye. Okay. Now it, it's in guys, in guys like this, guys, it, you get a lot of generic content. You get an awful lot of one word answers, you know, um, uh, you know, exercise, get up early, go to bed early, you know, that sort of thing. So So here, so bear with us while we go through the 10, because there's two that you need to hear about here.
1: And we all have a different top 10 list for everything, Martin, don't we? Your favorites are not mine.
2: We do, absolutely right. But um, but the top
1: 10 list of practice priorities will probably be available, but we're focusing on this one today.
2: That's right. So other priorities are available, but at number one, they have networking. Okay, that's what they regard as a practice priority. Is that a priority for your firm? On number two, They've got pick up the phone. We're coming back to that one.
1: (laughs) Be proactive, yeah.
2: Number three, they've got strive for implementation, not perfection. At number four, enable two-factor authentication. At number five, avoid sending documents via email. We're coming back to that one. At number six, use an online client portal. At number seven, very topical. Ramp up your client onboarding at number eight. Automate as much as possible. At number nine, centralize your documents. Smart Vault ask you to centralize your documents. There's a shot. And at number 10, clearly define workflow and processes. Now, knowing you guys, that's already overwhelmed. Those 10 are already too many. So we're coming back to two. Pick up the phone. I was surprised to see this. Uh, in a, uh, a report such as this or an infographic such as this. The, the blurb says take the time to have an informal conversation with your clients to understand how you can better support them, whether it be helping them with new legislation changes or additional areas of their business you didn't realize they offered. Now, for most of you, you'll have heard that before. That's not new advice, but guess what? How many of you actually do it? If I came to your practice, sat down with you and said, give me a list of all the clients you proactively chose to ring up to find out how they were doing in the month that we're in. I wonder how many would be on your list. I think it would be somewhere between zero and one in most firms. Okay. And if you're wrong, sorry, sorry, if I'm wrong and there's more than that, then write in and complain and tell me all about it. I'd love to know where there's more activity than that going on. But this is an unusual thing to find because it's a proactive measure. It's something that builds a relationship. It's very much the human element of running a practice. So I like that one, Rob.
1: And it's linked to networking, Martin, And that this is not a time to isolate yourself. A lot of people are working from home, clients and the accountants themselves. So it's not a time to get yourself on the outside. I'm thinking of the analogy of a coal fire. And if one piece of coal falls out of the fire onto the hearth, as it were, it gets cold very, very quickly. So you've got to stay in, you've got to stay around people. And that means picking up the phone, staying connected, reaching out, staying close to your own network, as well as your clients and potential clients.
2: That's right. That's right. So the other one we wanted to pick out of this list for you guys, um, which has come out recently, was number five, which is avoiding sending documents via email. Now this caught my eye because in practice growth methodology, uh, I teach that you must never send a proposal for your client via email because they'll ignore the narrative, go straight to the price and make a judgment call without considering all factors. But this goes further. So that principle I'm already a fan of. Here it says, sending personal information via email leaves your most sensitive data at risk of cyber attack. Instead, exchange files and documents through a secure client portal to keep you compliant with GDPR requirements. Now, again, most of you listening to this will go, well, of course, Martin. Who doesn't do that? Who does send sensitive information via email? Answer? Loads. The reason I picked this one out, number five out, apart from agreeing from each methodology, is because I get it. I see it. I see it happening all the time. I have practice managers complaining to me that partners do this. I have uh, senior managers complaining to me that partners do this. I have myself been on the receiving end of sensitive information coming via email from uh, my accountant. So, this is something that I know is commonplace within firms. And you might think, oh, we, we would never do that. bet you it's going on in your firm. but bet you someone in your firm is doing it. And that for me, guys, is, I don't know if we'd call it news, but it's certainly a reminder, refresher, sort of a, a kick up the backside to just have a look at how you are working with clients and what your processes are in 2022.
1: And there's a cybersec element to this whole piece, Martin, because enable two factor authentication, that's about the cybersecurity decreased risk, ramping up your client onboarding, having an online client portal. This is about keeping clients safe, managing risk. Uh, so these are obviously practice priorities.
2: Absolutely right. So, guys, we have therefore 10 practice priorities, starting from networking at number one, going down to clearly defined workflow and processes at number 10. We've picked out our two that we think are perhaps the most worthy of notice. You can go to smartworld.com forward forward slash resource forward slash practice priorities infographic to find out for yourself which ones are most important to you and your firm.
1: Yeah, we'll put the link in the show notes. And that is the news and the insights from the news for you today practice,
0: while decreasing how hard you work to make your firm really fly. Really the fly. Accounting Influencers wow. Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin And well,
1: Welcome to our expert interview this week, and I'm thrilled to have with me today, again, Professor Anton Lewis. Good day, sir. Good day, Rob. It's a pleasure to be here. Anton, it's lovely to have you back. We had a very fascinating conversation last time on race. Black accountants all kinds of things like that, critical race theory. And uh, we promised we'd have you on again to go a little deeper with this. So for people that haven't listened to the episode, just give us a little introduction of your background and what you do right now.
3: Uh, Yes, thank you, Rob. Uh, Yes, I'm a critical race theorist in accounting and uh, as well as an accounting professor at Valparaiso University, uh, the College of Business there. And in my research, I tend to ask the very simple question, both in the United Kingdom and the United States, Why don't we have more um, black accountants in the United Kingdom and African-American accountants in the United States? And that's kind of what my my research entails. It takes um, uh, the view that we need to maybe examine issues of race and racism within the accounting profession and explore what that might mean. And um, really seeking to gather networks of other critical uh, researchers in this area to also explore diversity in general within accounting.
1: Mm. And last time we asked the question: Is accounting, as a sector, as a profession, is it
3: racist inherently, explicitly? What conclusions would we draw from that? And again, it's it's a tricky uh, answer in some ways. Traditionally, because of the low numbers we have both in the United Kingdom and the United States, it's hard to escape the conclusion that we have structural racial inequalities within there, institutional racism if you if you will which means that within the sphere of accounting we needn't necessarily have people that are overtly um, racist or practicing discriminatory policies but the structural system means that it, it, it makes sure that black people don't come into the profession in the numbers that they should or actually get to the levels uh, of the senior levels of accounting like they should and the numbers coming out of the Chartered Institute uh, of uh, Accountants England and Wales and the AICPA in America uh, kind of reflect this as well the, the yeah. respective accounting bodies. Um, Black Lives Matter is still very much fresh in our
1: minds so we see the institutional racism of, of say the police because that plays out in society it plays out on the news it plays out on video cameras all over the world but in accounting that doesn't happen in the public domain does it this is often behind closed doors in practices so how does any kind of institutional
3: racism manifest itself in professional circles um thank you Robert an excellent question I think we touched upon this in our last episode as well in the workplace the institutional racism described is often present as this everyday racism. Another way to describe that would be uh, microaggressions, flights, if you will. Uh, it may be something as simple as being the only Black person in a given building at a given time doing an audit. And that spells the question to a person of colour that, you know, this is not an institution that really values diversity. Without saying a word or being overtly racist in, in that way, it might be the comment about someone's hair or touching a person um, a a black woman accountant uh, who has braids actually physically touching her hair or commenting how unusual or ethnic it might be these are mild slights that affect black professionals but over time build up and basically spell that you're not quite welcome in this environment we hear from women who are perhaps
1: a little more vocal about this, that it's harder for a woman in professional circles to get to the top. They've got to try twice as hard and do twice as much uh, to earn parity, if you like. Is that the same with ethnic minorities, blacks, disenfranchised
3: groups? Um, I, I would agree, and and here's this this the irony, you know. In some ways, we like to think, well, women have this issue, and uh, uh, people of color have this issue, and forget that they are often intertwined. So, the, the, an answer to that question might well be, well, what's the experience like for a? Um, a black woman accountant, does she experience both sexist gendered practice and racialized practice at the same time? And the answer would be yes. How might that look? Well, often um black women accountants suffer from what we call the um sapphire stereotype, where um their professionality in the workplace is seen as being almost too masculine, too hard. Um too abrasive, um, not professional in the sense that you don't have the give and take of a male professional, inverted commas. And at the same time, um, these black women positioned as sapphires are seen to work less well within team settings. And so you have this intersect of race and gender in, in that regard. And you know, again, I should highlight that um, in my College of Business, I'm the chair of our Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Committee. So while my own specific area of research, is that of the black british and african-american accounting experience i also in my my role as chair of of the dei committee have to make sure that we have representation and in a discrete sense from women uh, representation from our lgbtq plus uh, community um, make sure we have representation of those who are less able-bodied basically trying to account in the fairest way possible for all facets of difference within our College of Business. And that kind of moves us a little bit more, I think, into the area of diversity, equity and inclusion. I would like to expand on that a little bit. Just before we do, we acknowledged last time
1: that accounting as a profession is predominantly white, it's predominantly male, it's predominantly for the older people. Uh, tell us a little bit about whiteness, this
3: white supremacy, this white normality, as you call it. Uh, yes, uh, thank you, Rob. Um, it's a, a tricky subject in terms of making sure that we're clear about the terms that we use when we talk about issues of whiteness. For any, we don't talk you, about it much, do well, we? So we don't have the tools to have a conversation. This is this is it. And, um, and it's dangerous. As I've always said, the reason that I talk about race and racism and some of the other isms out there um, uh, that plague stigmatised groups is so that we can foster a conversation. If we use terms that can be seen as quite insulting to other groups, we close down the conversation. This is why it's important to talk about issues such as whiteness. Now, even a cursory reading of articles in relation to Black Lives Matter, you will find terms like whiteness cropping up without giving you an actual concise explanation of really what that is. And in some ways, whiteness, as I conceptualize it, would be the way of things in most professional settings. And what I mean by that is if, a black male accountant goes into the office sporting dreadlocks and uh, perhaps culturally appropriate attire, not in a suit, uh, uh, maybe in more African uh, attire, just just as an example, they will be seen as less professional. To be seen as actually professional, you must have a professional haircut, which is not dreadlocks, it's not an Afro, it's having shorter hair, if you are from um, African heritage. If you want to be seen as professional, you for the most part are wearing at the very least a shirt uh, and trousers, most likely a suit, particularly in front of clients. It relates to the authenticity of being that accountant. But the archetype of the most authentic accountant underneath it all is the accountant which is, as you've already mentioned, white, middle to upper class male, possibly with glasses okay that's the the dominant norm isn't it that's right it's the dominant norm that you've referred to and we think of that as the trusted respected bean counter and at the opposite end of that scale are those who are stigmatized your black accountant your woman accountant your accountant who is part of the lgbtq plus community and because they're nowhere near the archetype they're seen as other they're seen in many ways as lesser and they're put on the periphery of the accounting centre. And really, our job is to move our brothers and sisters in this regard to the centre, to make true the meritocracy that we know needs to exist in our profession. What I'm
1: seeing as I chair a lot of panels and interviews all over the world is the DEI phrase coming out now, this diversity, equity, inclusion. So accounting networks, associations, and firms themselves are getting to grips with this, but it's very early stages for them. So just
3: define some of the key terms here and what it's all about for us, Anton. And again, yes, uh, DEI, another tricky facet to deal with, but it's it's everywhere. And one of the nice things is that we're beginning to, to really get a hold of some of this. Uh, in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion, as we phrase it here in the United States, we're talking about taking those stigmatized groups that i've just mentioned and making sure that there is that actual real level playing field stigmatized groups as i've mentioned before women people of color um those lgbtq brothers and sisters those who are less able bodied just to mention a few those from working class backgrounds as well and um we aim to make sure that we have full representation in our organisations within my College of Business. We actually do quite a good job of getting different people of colours uh, and different uh, nationalities as full professors within our College of Business. But it's a constant churn, if you're not careful, to make sure we've got proportional representation. And not only do we have to gain Uh, our difference, if you like, within our institutions. The next challenge shortly after is to retain our um, differing groups in an environment that is welcoming, that says, we want you and we need you to stay. We want you to stay. Most importantly, that you are valued. And one of the ways that we show and display this value is in how we promote these various stigmatized groups, inverted commas, up and through our uh, various institutions such as accounting, so that when we actually look at the partners, we get a range of difference. When we look at our senior partners, we see people of color, we see lots of women, we see people who have, are from working class backgrounds, we see representation from our LGBTQ plus brothers and sisters, we see those who are less able bodied. And that's quite the challenge. So let's talk about representation. You talked about proportional
1: representation there. 50% of the planet are women. Does that mean 50% of accountants should be
3: women? It's so tricky, isn't it? Um, In some ways, we have to, of course, be careful that we don't promote those who shouldn't be there, inverted commas, because they don't have the skill sets that we're talking about, yeah? That's one of the narratives that is out there. Um, And one of the challenges that, that people often make around issues of... Positive discrimination in Britain and affirmative action in the United States. And it's such a tricky topic because um, that is what many kind of accuse positive discrimination and affirmative action of doing, of putting people who aren't qualified for the role in these positions. So as we reach 50% of women, we have a a proportion of women in those roles who can't do the job, but only there because they fit a diversity criteria. That's one of the arguments, right? Um, I would counter that this is a conversation about equality of outcome versus um, uh, equality of attainment. Now, when we talk about women alone, let's just be clear here that at the turn of the century, there were virtually no women accountants. And now we actually have significant number of women accountants in our profession. And the reason that we have them wasn't because the profession with open arms said, you know, keeping women away from our profession is a bad thing. Women accountants, over that period of time had to lobby for the position. They had to change the profession, had to make the profession enough to accept um, femininity within its ranks and see their value. And the fight is still ongoing. And by definition, to be able to fight and be accepted means not only do you have to be able to do the job, you have to do the job as well, if not better than men. So this charge, that allowing positive discrimination and affirmative action policies to put people in positions where they're not qualified, to me, doesn't have enough resonance. What it should be doing is level the playing field up to allow these, these women and other stigmatized groups enough of a fair run. A way of thinking about that, Rob, is imagine if we're in a race and we're looking at one set of group, women, for example, and we put them way, way, way at the back positive discrimination or affirmative action says, do you know what? I think you should be nearer the start line. You're still all in the same race, but we're going to have you as near, if not on the start line with everybody else. So those with the ability have a fair chance with everybody else, including those white male, middle to upper class archetypes who tend to win because they already had a head start. Got it. Use
1: the words equity and equality almost interchangeably, but I'm I'm sure they mean different things, don't they? Because it's not diversity, equality, and inclusion. It's diversity, equity, and inclusion. So just make a distinction for us with those terms again uh, and it's always tricky and it always stops <laughs> you're the expert
3: here so you're getting all the tricky questions <laughs> um expertise does not mean you know everything um i often cite to them that if i don't know it i will run away and i'll, I'll try and investigate it for but you the expert is the one that knows five percent more than the person asking the question that, that, that is true that is true <laughs> i will do my best to answer your question in in that regard for me diversity is making sure that when we look around the workplace, we see difference around us in whatever facet that might be. Equality to me means making sure that that difference that we see, be they women, people of color, uh, those members of our LGBTQ plus community, those less able-bodied have the same opportunity to progress and succeed within that environment and those are two quite separate things one is to have the representation and the other is to make sure that that representation of difference that we have within our settings has the same chance in this race to the top that we're all involved in Uh, and again this is synonymous with the idea Of inclusion, too, that the groups that are actually within this environment fighting their way to the top feel valued. And this is very important feel valued and secure within that setting, that they are included, and that it's not just talk. And one of the problems we have with diversity, equity, and inclusion, to my mind, is that talk is cheap. It's actually a very difficult thing to attain. And while we present this meritocracy, it isn't such. So when we look around in accounting, we don't really see the level of diversity across these groups that we should. When we look around accounting, as we look to the higher ends of of our um, institution, uh, our institutions, we see less difference. We see more homogeneity. Um, And when we see and look for equity, um, within within this role, or, or feelings of inclusion, rather, um, we see higher retention rates. And that kind of says to me that we're failing DEI as it stands. So equality is equal access to opportunity. Is equity something slightly different? Again, I think equality and equity as I view it are somewhat interchangeable. And to tell you the truth, Rob, some of the problem around this um, is that we've had, again, as I'll, I'll call it, diversity, equity, inclusion for quite some time. And we haven't got to where we need to be with it because some of the terms here are interchangeable. They're hazy, they're not distinct. And you're trying to put money and action and policy around things that aren't really sharply defined, not as much as they need to be. And in this process of doing this, let us not forget that the various groups that we're trying to help with greater representation within our organization, greater uh, equity or equality in, in getting through that organization, greater inclusion in feeling that they belong, we actually haven't succeeded in that. And during this process, the amount of, amount of time, energy and effort get spread to discrete groups. So sometimes we'll concentrate on women and we'll leave the other stigmatized groups to the side. Sometimes we'll concentrate on people of, of color because there's been an increase in the, the, the public awareness around Black Lives Matter. Sometimes we'll then um, put our resource time and effort towards um, those of working class backgrounds. And the problem here is limited resources are going to particular groups at particular times. and the onus on um, making sure that this this tide, which would raise all ships at all the time, that doesn't happen in an even way. And so many groups get helped at the cost of other groups. There's kind of like an oppression Olympics around diversity, equity and inclusion. And that is a problematic it shouldn't be that a stigmatized group benefits at the cost of another. We have to re-articulate our conversation around DEI in that regard. And again, this is very much a personal view, others might, might challenge me a little on that. And the other part is, we can get stuck in the weeds of defining what diversity is, inclusion is, equity is, and all that takes time and energy. And some of the problems we've had around DEI are, what's the word I'm looking for now? Um, we get exhausted with it. It's just more talk, more time. Does it really matter? I don't really have much passion around this. Um, you know, it's just a tick box exercise, and that, in many ways, is a real problematic that we find in actioning whatever DEI as we conceive it to be in our workplaces in a practical, real sense. And I don't know if this this helps give you a bit of an explanation around my thinking of this, Rob. I'm not not sure I've been as as concise as I could have been there for you.
1: Well, it's clear that there are so many grey areas around this. I've just written down the term, one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. And I'm thinking what one person thinks is fair, another person thinks is discrimination around the same topic. So how many women is enough? How many black people is enough in an accounting firm? How many gay people is enough to be ticking the box of DEI?
3: How do we answer that? And again, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? This is one of the problems that we have in a racialized, gendered, classed um, world, um, just to name three of the inequities, never mind some of the others I've mentioned, right? How much is enough? The truth of the matter is, we shouldn't be asking that question in the first place. If our accounting environment and by extension, business and our society is truly equitable, truly meritocratic, then it doesn't matter in any given industry to have that representation, does it? Because really you're there by your merits and we never discriminated against you in the first place. So if you were to have a situation of 10 partners and one woman in a perfectly meritocratic world, that would be okay because we would all know and have demonstrable proof that it w- that situation didn't occur because the environment was inherently sexist. And that would be fine. That's the point that DEI dies. We don't need it anymore. The sad truth is we don't live in that reality, right? That's an alternative. I'm a sci-fi buff. That's an alternative reality that exists somewhere else. <laughs> yes, That's where these issues become difficult. And I can't give you an easy answer, Rob, because there aren't any easy answers to that. Okay? because we live in a racialized gendered class world, to just name some, we have to feel our way through to see what is enough. I would hope that as we see more women, more people of color, more black people, more people from working class backgrounds, people from our LGBT, LGBTQ plus community and other stigmatized groups not only enter the profession in larger numbers, maybe not proportional, but go through there and being to signal others within those stigmatized group status that this is a nice environment, we will find a natural level. Sometimes you might have more, sometimes you might have less, but the idea is this environment is welcoming. And most importantly, for me, this environment values you and values the difference of which exists within your particular grouping. And value is really important here. If you are valued, then it almost doesn't matter the amount of proportionality that you have, because you know that this is a fair environment for you to succeed. You don't have those barriers. And the problem with quotas in that way is that we then go back to the question you originally posed, Rob, how many is enough? As if we can have a number to deal with what is an intrinsically a, a, a problem of acceptance and value of difference and groups that are in there. Does that help?
1: Yes, of course, but it begs more questions. If we don't know how many is enough, we don't know when we've arrived. We don't know when we've got it right. So it's difficult for accounting firm leaders listening to say, look, we want to promote a DEI agenda, but it's difficult
3: to put a policy around that because we don't know what good looks like. And this is the point. Look, like most very difficult questions, we have in our society and within our institutions. There are no easy answers. If we had easy answers, we'd have done it by now. We're going to have to feel our way through. We're going to have to find out what works and doesn't work. Um, In in terms of things like policy, to to your point, Rob, one of the things I've argued is a much closer relationship between critical researchers like myself and accounting policy setters um, within organisations like the big four and within accounting bodies like the Institute of Chartered Accountants, England and Wales and the IICPA. So we can begin to use research, both quantitative and qualitative, to begin to craft policies that has a chance of beginning to make sure that the practices that we put in place actually have demonstrable benchmarks and outcomes. We don't do that currently. And accepting that there is not going to be an easy answer to this, this is going to take years, it's going to take a long time, and we still might not succeed. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. What about people that say, "Hey, listen, Anton, life's not fair." Whether you
1: whether there is real racism or perceived racism, it's just the way things are. So we we're not going to change anything. Let's just get on with it, make the best we can. I had the analogy recently that if you distributed all the wealth in the world and gave everybody the same amount, so there was complete equity over a period of time, all of the money would end up back in the same pockets, indicating that that's just the way the world works.
3: And it is interesting, isn't it? I I, I had a similar sentiment, interestingly, from a very close friend who is an accounting professor who said, and uh, she's African-American actually, and she, she said the same sort of thing to me. She said, do you know what? Nothing's going to change. Why bother? Let's just be honest here. Why are you wasting your time doing this? And you know what, Rob? It gave me real pause for thought. Why do this if we believe it won't change anytime time soon? It's it a won't dangerous really. place to be, though, because there's no hope in that sentiment, is there? Well, that's one thing. And, of course, maybe it's the, the hidden sociologist in me. I choose to believe the city we live in, and by extension, the institutions we spend our time in, like accounting, are socially constructed, Rob. If they are socially constructed, technically, we can change anything and we can change Everything. The idea that we can't change it is just not true. We just don't have the will yet to do so. And again, I'll take you back to what were reality. In in some ways, what you've said there, Rob, is let's deal in reality the way it is. Yeah, this is what it really is. Back in the 1900s, the reality was there were minuscule amounts of women within the accounting profession, certainly in the United Kingdom and in the United States. Roll on to our more modern times, and we have many, many, many more women. That is an example of a minoritized group that actually changed accounting reality. That actually happened. That's an example of changing fundamentally social reality as we see it. Yeah, that's changing what was perceived in the 1900s as possible. It's being done. We can do this with people of color. We can do this with our LGBTQ plus community. We can choose to do this with other stigmatized groups. As I've said that, we just need to have the will to do so. And the driver behind that for me is social justice. And behind that, it simply says, I think people who tend to take that line of thinking actually do want things to change. But within their understanding of social reality, they believe it just isn't possible. And I'm here to try to attempt to challenge them to say, actually, anything is possible. We really can. We really can change things in a fundamental manner. And I should just highlight, while I'm saying there's been greater penetration of women within accounting, we're still not there yet. By any means, when we look at the number of top women partners, our numbers still to say that, to use how much is enough. From what we can can see, some of the numbers be reported out of the big four. We still don't have um the number of women accountants where they need to be. We still don't have policies that are friendly enough in terms of um uh uh women accounting colleagues who leave in terms of of, of raising children, then come back and finding themselves not being able to get through to the, the top echelons, the top areas of accounting. So there's work to be done there. But to to, to finish, I would say we have to make a choice to change our profession for the better and challenge the notion that we can't change. There are very intelligent people like you, Anton,
1: passionate crusaders for change. Within the accounting profession, we have heads of governing bodies, professional associations, you've named a few, that are pushing for change. Even the accounting firm leaders, managing partners, CEOs in Companies for the accountants themselves, how can they answer the question that they genuinely might not know the answer to? Am I inherently racist? Is there any hidden racism in me? How would they go about bringing about
3: change themselves and recognizing some of the issues? I believe it's it's work. I think it starts by asking the very question, asking that of oneself, and not in a way that elicits guilt. Guilt is not helpful, right? If you really want to know, look around. Are you find a stigmatized group? Are you being supportive? Are you being helpful? And read. I cannot emphasize enough. Read. See. Begin to understand that the reality that we're in right now might not be the reality that you think it is. My analogy, and I might've used this before, but I'll be really brief about this, is the matrix. In many ways, many particularly white accounting colleagues are in a racial matrix with a choice of a red pill or a blue pill. Red pill, stay Uh, if I'm not, to say, blue pill, stay within the racialized matrix and everything's fine. And that is, yeah, I'm not gonna look at this too much. Red pill, we actually read more, we ask more questions. We choose to ask ourselves whether we're part of a system that is uh, oppressive and subjugates racialized groups. And then what do I do to look, to want to attempt to challenge that, to destabilize that system? And, you know, that's hard work. It's challenging work. It asks some very dangerous questions of our sense of self. But if we truly want to make things better and throw in with those groups who are already suffering, then that's the work we need to do. Actually, the question you ask, Rob, in some ways, and again, I might be repeating myself, so I apologize, is how brave are we willing to be to ask ourselves of these questions? How brave are we willing to be to go and show support and endanger our own sense of self and, and in some ways, how we are regarded within this environment? How brave can we be? Sure. And in closing, it's a little like
1: climate change. Think globally, but act locally. We we have a big problem throughout the world, but we can
3: play our little part, can't we, and take some slice of responsibility for change. I, I couldn't agree more. And if enough of us do this, those little parts become big parts. Um, I often uh, remember a good friend of mine who resides in Germany now, won't be long, um, but he once told me over a conversation in the pub that he said, you know what? It starts with us, you and I. It starts with the local. And by that, I interpret that to mean it starts with uh, our accounting colleagues within their environments seeking others of difference and offering their support and help, understanding that in helping and support, in generating dialogue, we might stumble and we might fall. But we do that together. And if enough, enough of us work together within our groups, then we can foster change across our environment. And we mustn't forget that alone we can do nothing together. We can move mountains I do believe in that, but we can't do it unless we have dialogue, we can't do it unless we're willing to be brave, we can't do it unless we're willing to do the work to see what our environment is, be it racialized, gendered, or classed, and seek to change it, seek to say we can do better, we will do better. It's a great, I was going
1: to say call to arms, but we don't want war here, but there is a battle going on. Uh, Professor Anton Lewis, that's so good. Thank you so much for your inspiration and your your enlightenment today in, in bringing some clarity to what are very difficult topics. Any final thoughts for you as we leave our listeners uh, with a lot to think about, but also some actions perhaps that they can take.
3: Um, Thank you, Rob. And it's always a pleasure to be here with you. Always a pleasure. I think for your audience, I I would say this, and I think Rob, you've alluded to it just, just briefly there. We live in fairly hopeless times, okay? It's easy for me to talk about this conversation about race and racism within accounting and just add another layer of hopelessness. It's not hopeless, okay? As I said, I believe my friend in Germany, I believe that together we can really make some changes. I'm calling on your audience and those around to be brave. I'm calling on you to choose to find that person, that stigmatized group, if you like, um, to find them, help them. allow yourself to be helped. And together with that small change, we will foster greater change around our profession, hold some of our accounting bodies and some of our leaders accountable for what we do at the local level, for it to be much greater. Foster discourse and actually believe in a better environment in the future if we take these actions. Believe in a better time ahead. Anton Lewis for president. Thanks so much for your passionate <laughs> <new> insights today. <laughs> My pleasure, Rob. Take care. Thank you so much. For here's what works
1: and this is our advice to accounting practitioners all over the world our twenty-five thousand listeners in 150 countries to give you the lowdown on various aspects of the accounting world and help you advance what you're doing raise your game and we're talking about employer brand today i did an episode recently on what works with your employer brand website and spoke briefly about how your accounting practice your accounting firm website or even if you're a fintech vendor serving the accounting profession how your site is conflicted in that it's trying to attract new business. So you need to talk about your service lines, your areas of expertise, your products, your strengths, your content, your thought leadership, but your staff are not interested in that. Your potential employees are not interested in that. So your site also has to talk about vacancies, your values, your culture, what it's like working there are you a fun place to be what is career progression in your firm in your practice in your company so this all speaks to employer brand it's become a really hot topic over the last few years in the war for talent the great resignation people are deciding that they don't want to work in places anymore where it's not fun to work and they're recalibrating their lives and looking at various things so When we looked at employer brand website, we looked at the kind of things that you should be sending out by way of messaging to your potential employees. So today, I'd like to talk about getting started with employer brand for accounting firms predominantly. And if you're already on with this, as I'm sure your firm is, then you will recognize that in the War for Talent, you've got to be putting over a good employee brand proposition. And if you're just getting started with this, or you want to benchmark what you're doing with what I'm about to tell you, I do talks for accounting networks, associations, alliances, and I also help accounting firms create employer brand content with videos of their staff. So I interview the staff on Zoom, just like we record this podcast, and get them to tell their stories about why your firm is a great place to work. So if you want to talk to us about that, get in touch with us at the podcast and find Rob Brown on LinkedIn. I'm handling this topic. So Martin Bissett is letting me get on with this because it's a topic that's really close to my heart. And let's look at the benefits of employer brand, and then I'm going to give you a tip for how to really get started with it. And the key benefit for you is that it helps you attract new talent. And In this modern world of talent acquisition, employer branding says that you are a great place to work. And it's used for communicating with your current employees that they are safe where they are, they're in the right place, as well as your potentially new employees, which are often a a passive workforce. They don't necessarily want to change, but if you can put something better in front of them, they probably will. And all the research shows that uh, a good employer brand has a direct impact on your talent acquisition. And those firms with better reputations for looking after their employees have higher quality and more satisfied staff. And that candidate experience, candidates being somebody that will potentially work with you, is significantly improved. And you retain those people longer, if you have a strong employer brand. So the benefits are legion. Uh, Let me give you a few stats here. 75% of candidates research a firm's reputation and employer brand before applying for a job. So they're looking for certain things. 83% of employers say that employer brand plays a significant role in their ability to hire the right talent. And 69% of candidates would not accept a job in a firm with a bad reputation even if it means that they wouldn't have a job so clearly employer brand has got something to say and research also tells us that a strong employer brand experience reduces your employer turnover rate so you retain staff a lot better i saw one stat said 84 percent of employees would leave their current firm if they received an offer from a firm with a better reputation So something's going on there so reduction in your employee turnover rate. Reduction in cost per hire. Time to hire is faster when your employer brand is stronger and you get 50% more qualified candidates. That comes from Glassdoor. In addition, Glassdoor estimates that 95% of potential candidates say a firm's employer brand is a critical factor when deciding whether to apply for a job or not. 75% of job seekers are likely to apply if they see a firm actively managing its employer brand. You're getting the message here, aren't you? A good employer brand is a no-brainer because Everyone's hiring right now. It is a candidate's market. So what is exactly, so exactly what is employer branding? Well, you've got an employer brand, your firm, and whether you're a leader, senior partner, firm owner, managing partner, and you are in a hiring role, maybe you're in HR, or you lower down the food chain, you are an associate, a trainee, uh, an, an early hire, a new hire. Employer branding affects you because you want to attract the right talent, but you want to see the employer brand and make sure you're in the right place. Because if you're not, boom, the great resignation, you'll be looking elsewhere. So it's important that your firm gets it right. And it's important you as an employee have your steering wheel on the hand of your own career. And you know that you're in the right place. So you should be looking out for a lot of these things. So you've got an employer brand. It exists. It's been experienced every day, whether you realize it or not. And it's made up of multiple things like the policies, processes, programs, culture, rewards, benefits, perks that you offer prospective candidates in your firm. It's your reputation. It's your credibility as an employer. It's your promise to new hires. It's how people perceive your firm's values, how they perceive the work environment. It's your promise to your employees and your staff, and it enables you to recruit, retain, and engage the right people. And think about this. You've probably got growth targets for your firm. Maybe you've got personal growth targets, commercial targets that you want to hit for a new business. You cannot deliver on your growth targets without more capacity, more resource, more people, better people. So if you're going to deliver on the promises you're making to your clients around great service, a great client experience, if you want to grow your firm, increase your profitability, if you want the ability to say no to the wrong kind of work, then you need a strong employer brand. You need a strong reputation because otherwise people are not even going to apply for vacancies at your place. So you've got to start by auditing your personal brand. This is the the getting started piece. Now we know that employer brand is critical, so you've got to ask some questions around what your employer brand is right now. And auditing means asking where are you now? How is your firm currently communicated to the public and to current employees that you are the go-to firm to work? And how you're any different as an employer than anybody else? And you've got to remember, an accountant they could go into industry as an accountant. They could go and work for Another sector entirely as an accountant. Uh, a friend of my wife's, his son is an accountant in a gym. So there are many opportunities out there. People don't have to work in practice with an accounting qualification. So here is where you might take out some surveys or conduct some informal employees, informal informal interviews, pardon me, with your employees and get a handle on what your staff think about why you are a good place to work, or indeed what it's like working there. You may think they're happy, but unless you hear it from them, you don't know. And unless you give them a forum, a conversation, a means to communicate confidentially or candidly what it is like working there and how your culture plays out on a day-to-day basis, then you're not going to fully know. Look at what people are on social media about their job. Uh, you can get reviews on employer review websites like Glassdoor. You can hire an external company to monitor the reputation of your brand as an employer and find out what your current your firm currently does well and what your employees love about working with you and find out what needs improving. Because unless you've got a solid idea of where you stand, you're not able to pinpoint what you want to change. And here's a little case study I came across, which was with Goldman Sachs. This is a brand that you will know. They surveyed more than 40,000 people on various metrics to gauge the perceptions of the company in the eyes of their staff around things like reputation. What are people saying about us? What is What are we doing on diversity? And some unfavorable words continue to crop up in their findings, including competitive, elitist, and cutthroat. Now, Goldman Sachs did not want to be known as that. Whether they are that, in fact, who knows? I don't work for Goldman Sachs, I don't speak for them. But what this survey did was lead them to start a campaign called Day in the Life. And Day in the Life aimed to set the record straight to show what it's really like to work at Goldman Sachs and attract the next generation of talent. So you've got to get a handle on what your employer brand is like right now and what your own staff are saying about you. Then you can create an employer brand strategy so you get clear on specific goals. You can start to think about what your employer brand should look like. What should it say about you? What do you want candidates out there in the labor market to see and hear about you? What do you want them to feel when they come into contact with any contact Any content, any thought leadership, any social media posts, any looks and feels from your website? What do you want them to feel when they come into contact with your firm? Where do you want to be seen and heard as the accounting firm of choice? And do you know your key objectives with your employer brand and how you rank these in terms of priority? For instance, are you looking for more qualified candidates uh, or greater diversity in your workplace? Do you want the lower end of the market and the new entrants and the grads? Do you want some lateral hires and senior hires? Are you looking for greater awareness with your employer brand of what your firm does and stands for and communication of your values? Do you just want to put your vacancies out? There's lots of things your employer brand could do. So you've got to get a handle on auditing what it is right now Then you can start to think about how you communicate your brand and whether you're consistent with your messaging and communication and where your brand shows up. And then people are going to see what you stand for. And like I said before, this is not to attract new clients. That's your corporate brand. You need that too, but separately. This is about attracting new talent. So it's your values, your your business goals have all got to be in alignment with your employer brand. And what would an employee think when they walk through your door for the first time? How does your culture look in real life? 94% of executives and 88% of employees believe that a distinct company culture is important to business success. So crafting your own culture is vital to attracting the right caliber of candidate. And I read somewhere, this doesn't mean beanbag chairs and office beer fridges and other things that the millennials want, the table tennis, ping pong tables, the foosballs. Yeah, that's cool. We can all be a Google, can't we? But focusing more on the environment that your employees are working in and i'll share more with this on future episodes but you've got to be flexible and open them to them working on the road at home in the office what's your policy as long as the work gets done so lots for you to think about in auditing what your brand is right now people to ask a reputation to gauge once you've got a handle on that you can start to set some goals so that's getting started with your employer brand We'll take a look in future weeks at employee well-being, rewarding your staff properly, and wrapping up the whole employer brand situation with a checklist of things that you should be doing. That's it for today. Go and do something about it. If you are lower down the food chain and shape your employer brand from the inside out. And if you're in hiring position, make sure you've got a handle on what your messages are saying to the outside world. See you next time.
0: You're listening to the Accounting Influencers Podcast. Cutting through the crap to bring you the very best interviews, insights and wisdom. From the planet's most influential people in the accounting and fintech world. With Rob Brown and Martin
1: Bissett. Welcome to the Leaders in Accounting podcast and this is where I get the opportunity to interview thinkers, leaders. Practitioners, people throughout the world that are blazing a trail, doing something a little bit different, are really passionate about what they're doing, sharing in that with our accounting and fintech influencer audience. And I'm thrilled to have with me today, Mr. Jeremy Van Grohl from Wisconsin. Good day, sir.
4: Good day to you, Rob. Thanks for having me.
1: Great to have you on the show, Jeremy. For people that haven't come across you, tell us
4: what you do. Sure. So uh yeah, obviously we do bookkeeping and accounting for nonprofits, really dedicated to that niche. That's where our passion is. And really the whole gambit from transactional, I like to say blocking and tackling, bookkeeping all the way to pseudo CFO services if that's what they need to support them wherever they are on their journey.
1: And you've come onto our radar because you're starting to pop your head up and appear on more more and more shows. You're clearly on a crusade, you've got a message put out there, you've got a noble cause. Tell us how this makes a difference to nonprofits, nonprofits, what you do.
4: Yeah, great question. So um, no secret that nonprofits are historically stretched thin and not abundant in resources, right? whether it's time, people, funding, all that. And the the one of the biggest pieces that we can help them with is the time piece or the people piece and get a lot of that financial side of things off their plate, get some efficiencies in there and really free up their time to focus on their mission and building out their donors and their revenue sources. So really take that back office functions and, and work on that for them and let them succeed in, in what they're doing.
1: You specialize in nonprofits. You made that decision to niche, as we say in the UK, you would call it niche. Tell us about what was going through your head when you made that strategic decision to niche for them.
4: Yeah. Well, I from I a background um, of pretty hardcore financial analysis and accounting for about 15 years um, in the manufacturing realm. And in that realm, you are always worried about you know, what is your profit makers? What? How do we get the data in to make strategic decisions and well business decisions so we can move our organization forward, right? And that piece I feel has been neglected a bit on the nonprofit side. Uh, really, there's a lot of focus on the nonprofit word as compliance and that's important, right? Like we all need to make sure that I's are dotted, T's are crossed, things are in place where they should be to be compliant with all of the laws and things that are out there. Stay out of jail, right? Stay out of jail, right? We all want that, right? And controls got to be in place, whole nine yards, right? All of this is very important. But I feel, however, in that nonprofit realm, that that gets a little bit over over stressed at the expense of having good insight around their information to be able to make good decisions for the overall organization. So that's where I like to say, like, what what information do you not have now that would would move you guys forward. What, what questions are your board asking that you do not aren't able to answer at this point and know all these things and build the financial function around that, being able to answer these questions and give you good information to make those decisions. And yes, the compliance piece will be there, but you know, 90% of our clients are probably higher than that, engage with an accountant for their review or audit every year as well. And you might need to move things around in order for that to be perfectly aligned to gap and all of the intricacies in whatever the accounting law is. However, have that information that you can use day to day to really succeed and increase that impact that you're having with your mission.
1: And this is the challenge for good CPAs, good accountants in practice, that they move beyond the compliance. We know there's downward pressure on compliance fees. That side of the business is becoming less valued by the client. So you're talking about the advisory stuff, aren't you? The additional services, the consulting, the strategic side of your advice.
4: Right. Yeah. And and I feel like that's really where myself and my team who are amazing shine is like, we get involved with their day-to-day management on things, right? You see so many of the accounting firms that swoop in at the end of the month, grab some data and throw them some reports or are involved annually. However, you know, again, getting in that into the weeds with them, understanding like what is really important, what is the information that they need and being that responsive financial partner and soundboard for them uh, has been able to... Allow us to provide amazing value.
1: Give us a definition of non-profit, Jeremy. We're over here in the UK. We're an international podcast. We've got twenty-five thousand listeners all over the world, predominantly in North America and Europe. We, we use charities a lot, but non-profit is a phrase here. So let's just define terms for us, so we're all on the same page.
4: Yeah, to me, it is a great question and get, getting to the brass tacks there. But it's an organization that is not owned specifically by an entity nor exists in order to profit from it or develop revenue over expenses for that. You know, I like to say that it's not transferable um, and it's also something that's devoted to a mission. And there is a lot of people early in their nonprofit journey that think because it's a nonprofit, you can't make money. That is not true at all. As long as all of your funds are dedicated to go towards your mission, uh, you are available to build reserves and have those for your organization. Um, so that's where we try to get that focus is, no, we don't want to be break even every time you want to build those reserves. Make sure that you have excess funds. And so, like, I think nonprofit can be a little a little bit deceiving there.
1: Extra points for use of the term brass tax. That's a very good English phrase. Our English listeners will, <laughs> will really get that one. Talk to us about the difference between a, a CEO or leader of a nonprofit and a general business CEO in terms of what the accountant does and, and works with them all. They've got a different mindset, haven't they? A different. Yeah. Way
4: of yeah. I think like it's stakeholders really are hugely different. So if you're thinking about the executive director or leader of a nonprofit, you don't just have owners that you're trying to create value and deliver a return on. Right. You have the board that has fiduciary responsibility for the organization. You have your volunteers and staff that you're trying to help them. I know I'm big on that in developing our team. You want them to not just do good towards the organization, but also build out their professional and personal careers. And then you have the mission and the mission should be the overarching thing. That you're always going back to and focusing on so how are you having an impact how are you efficiently delivering on that mission and how and like where we come in is talk about like how can we use the funds that you have to be efficient on increasing that impact so it's always not just financial either the big other piece that we can work into things is the statistical stuff so like is it lives impacted is it you know plants put in the ground if that's what it is you know whatever that specific thing is Uh, that may be just important to a lot of your stakeholders as the dollars and cents. And so having that information to tell that right story to your end user of the information is really the key. We
1: can't ignore the crazy times that we're in right now. We're coming out of a pandemic. Hopefully we're seeing that off. But there's been some very vulnerable people. Uh, A lot of things have gone wrong. Uh, A lot of people have suffered. The need for nonprofits, people with a, a good heart, a noble cause, willing to make a difference, not trying to make money from it, you must find that the nonprofit sector is getting bigger right now with so much to do and so many people to take care of.
4: Yeah, I agree. And it was it's a little bit of a weird time too, depending on what your mission is. So we have several of our clients that really are focused on delivering basic needs, resources to those in need. And um, some of them really well-funded, some of them not so much. But with the whole pandemic, there was this just slew of money getting thrown into the Uh, economy and thrown into these organizations and the general public uh, as far as government support and things like that. So a lot of them had their demand for their services drop significantly. And so then that's a whole nother challenge that they have. It's like, hey, we, yeah, we're maybe looking good financially now and our donations have stayed stagnant. However, our need or our demand has gone down. So what do we do with this inflow of money that we have now? We have more revenue coming in than we typically have for uh, or equal revenue coming in, but less expenses because we're not out there to help. How do we pivot shift? uh, The pivot word has been used way too often, but shift our resources to be able to expand our impact or find the people that aren't getting these government programs. So again, true leadership has really shown through where you know like, hey, just because all these other people are getting these government programs, doesn't mean that we can sit back on our heels and just go with it and build up reserves. How do we get down to that next level? How do we find the people that still need this? So yeah, that's been an interesting, interesting thing.
1: And you're not just an accountant or an advisor to these organizations, you're a a, a virtual or in-situ CFO, aren't you? You get in there and roll your sleeves up and help them out on a daily, weekly basis.
4: Yeah, there's there's several of them that we have. And, and again, we kind of run the whole gamut. We have some of the other ones that just need the day-to-day stuff, but there's other ones that really needed a financial guidance and higher level than that. And yeah, that's where we try to get in and, and figure out the goals. right? So if, if they're you know, medium term on their journey at the nonprofit, but their biggest goal is, hey, we want to build out an endowment. So we have our administrative costs 100% covered with this endowment within the next five years. Then, How do we map that out? What is that required from donors? Can we Give that to your uh, development staff and say, here's some messaging that we can help put around that. Um, And also, where should that money be? So as far as like investments, what's your window right? that you're going to want those those funds coming out? Is it best to have it really liquid? Should you be investing that a little bit further? All that stuff. So yeah, we try to give any kind of the financial advice that they're looking at, um, again, really based on where they are. We've had
1: a few CFO experts, uh, heads of CFO communities on the show recently. And uh, there's been talk of there are different types of CFOs, for instance. There's a strategic one who's almost the right hand of the CEO with oversight of a lot of areas. There's that fundraising CFO who is responsible for putting the provision behind the vision, if you like. And then there's that operational CFO that might be running finance teams and other things. Do you distinguish between those different
4: roles as well in what you do? We we try to. I mean, I think it comes pretty clear early in the engagement process, the level of financial acumen that each person has, right? And, and by no means judging, right? There are a lot, of, like I could not be a development director. I'd be an okay operations person, all that stuff. But you can tell, and and most of it, the reason we love the nonprofit niche is they're honest and they're caring, right? They will flat out tell you like, I am not a financial genius. This is where I struggle. They're very, very a high level of candor that you'll give you very early um, and, and fully admit where they need your help, which is a huge benefit to us that we're not, they're not trying to, uh, avoid the topic or seem like they're less knowledgeable than they should be in that aspect, which I think you get more on the business side, because it's it's closer, like it's your money, right? You want to make sure you know what you're talking about, all of that. So yeah, I mean, I think, and it depends what their background is. So if they came up through the development side, they'll be really good on the donor management side. If they came up on the operation side, they're really good there. So it's really figuring out what that uh, what the holes are, and where do we need to plug them in with some of our, our assistants and our, our special expertise. You're a very passionate
1: guy, Jeremy, that comes across. What do you love most about what you do?
4: Uh, it's people and the culture that we built. You know, I, I had uh, a lot of fellow bookkeeper firm owners, and all of them definitely have more problem clients than I have. We have almost none because we would just won't. First of all, they don't exist as often in the nonprofit world. Um, again, you have people out there that are trying to devote their life to whatever this mission is, and are extremely passionate about people, animals, plants, whatever that is, but extremely passionate people out there. And so then the focus really is on that, not are you cheating me out of taxes or did you not give me this thing exactly perfect? So I think I think that in itself is awesome. And then like we've built the culture within our organization to support that too, where it's nope, we come first, like your family comes first within our organization. And it's never been a problem with the clientele that we have. Having that, like we have an expectation we get to them the next day on everything. However, just talk to them like, hey, I'm having a rough time. Um, My my son is ill right now. I'm not going to get back to you at the end of this week. That has almost never been an issue for us. So it's been, again, those people and the team that I have bringing it all together. It's just been an amazing journey that we've had uh, over the last six years or so since we, we started this.
1: You're touching on the personal side of things there. We're looking after people who have their heart and soul their whole life, often their mortgage on the line, a lot of their own personal funds into a cause. So is it fair to say accountants, CPA, CFOs, they're not just financial professionals here. They are coaches, consultants, therapists, psychiatrists, friends, shoulders to cry on with their clients.
4: Yeah, I agree. And and I don't know, I I'm not I don't want to like overstate what we do, but there are a lot of our clients where like I'll text the ED a couple times a week and send them pictures when my kid gets first place in his gymnastics meet for the weekend. Right. And you know we'll tell each other like, hey, I'm going on vacation next week. Hey, I want to see pictures of that. Um I, I think that that is huge. And, and you just get to be, again, you get to be friends. So like they're not in that nonprofit role to become a millionaire and build out a business and cash out or whatever that is, pass it along with the legacy. They're really in there because they're passionate about the role. And then you can come in there and support that and just connect on a whole different level than I think you can in a lot of other industries. And also like the nonprofit community notoriously is not paid near what you would get in healthcare or in manufacturing or anything like that. So again, you have people who are who are higher prioritizing the things they're passionate about versus financial gain. So I think that makes a big difference too.
1: Accountants listening will think, well, it sounds great, Jeremy. I would love to have clients like that, that I can almost call friends and family that don't bitch and moan and whine about things. But how do you create a business around that? How do you be profitable? These people haven't got much money. They can't really afford the premium advisory services that I want to be giving them. So, how can you be profitable? What would you say to
4: them? That, that, that's a fair point. I think I don't believe I will ever be able to build a margin quite to the level of a cutthroat, high servicing accounting firm but I think I'm okay with that too. And there are also, you know, you can't, you can't service everyone, right? Like, so someone just starting their nonprofit where they're, they're out there hustling. You know, when I was in a similar position, I took on those clients. Thankfully, we've been able to grow with them. However, that's not always the right bit. And we will tell you, like he, I will meet with anyone and give them suggestions on a consultation call. That's absolutely free. Here's what I would focus on right now. And then when you get to the level that you've at $100,000 $100,000 revenue or wherever that, that that threshold is where you need higher financial management, then you need to get someone else involved. Um, but there are some other nonprofits out there that are really well organizations that have hugely passionate donor structures or donor networks set up and make a lot of money for that organization to donate to their mission and not having a well paid high level of business acumen financial person to support that makes that less I don't know, less effective, less doable over the long term, right? So they they're going to need to have that in place. And the the other piece with the nonprofits is getting the board to understand that too typically, if you have a really good board, and you have someone in there, that is a CPA as a treasurer, or was a vice president of finance and at some kind of for profit firm, they know the value that a good financial person can provide to that. And also, they realize that they likely do not know the intricacies of nonprofits. So if you know the intricacies of nonprofits, like we do and have that financial acumen, they can quickly see like, hey, I've never had this blush of information or be able to answer these questions. Can you do that for me? Yes, we can. Here's how we do that. Here's how I need the rest of the team to support it. So I think that that is a big consideration in that as well. This is great, Jeremy. What advice
1: would you give to accounting firm owners, leaders listening that are thinking of getting into the nonprofit game? They like the sound of it. They want to dip their toes in. Maybe they've got a few nonprofit clients, but they're wondering about, going all in, if you like, with the nonprofit sector, what would you say to them?
4: Yeah, I mean, just first of all, like find a a cause that you are passionate in and get in the board, right? Even if it's just whatever, it doesn't have to be the treasurer right away, anything like that, but get on a board, make sure that you start to understand just the overall um, intricacies of the staff versus the board versus the volunteers versus the impact you're trying to do all of that and how that all works together. And just have that reiterate, or that experience, and have that reiterate that you really want like to go down this path. And then if that if that holds true, and you want to make that journey, to me, I, I did that. My wife has been in nonprofit realm her whole life, um, that helped me. But however, I just grabbed a bunch of books, right? Like found some novels that you know teach you, talk to you about how these are set up, financial management for nonprofits, um, connect with local leaders. Uh, Steve Zimmerman is a big one around here that's in the Milwaukee area. Um, found some of his information. Just go find those resources, um, and then it's going out and being in, in all the right places, right? Join your join your um, centers of commerce, whatever other kind of networking type groups you have. Just about everybody out there in every region has a, a key demographic or a key group of people that are extremely philanthropic. Pop, I can't think of it. word high in philanthropy. <laughs> but um, you know, start talking to those people and say, hey, I want to do this. Where do you see this need out there? And there's also a lot of other financial institutions where they have a big uh big market within nonprofits, start to talk to them. Like if you know a banker that has a lot of nonprofit clients, talk to them. Say, say, what are you seeing? All that. so it's really kind of just getting out there initially, teaching yourself and hustling. I'm thinking too of I ask you that question aimed at the
1: leaders who can make decisions on the strategic direction of a firm and the kind of clients that they take on. I was speaking recently to a top 10 uh, firm here in the UK, the managing partner thereof, and asking him about the talent situation. We know that people are leeching out of accounting. It's becoming less attractive for them. The great resignation and all that. So how does accounting become more attractive? And indeed, how do firms attract good talent? And he says, we like to give our people a say in the projects that they take on. So for those accountants that listen, that are lower down in the food chain, for want of a better phrase... And they've got something on their heart to take on a project to clients some pro bono work, something like that. This managing partner would say, tell us what you're interested in, and we will get behind you with some time with some resource to help you support those causes those passions that you're really involved with so. Those rank and file, they should be putting their heads up, saying to their leaders, their bosses, hey, I want to get stuck into this. Will you back me? Would you go along with that?
4: Yeah, I think absolutely. Um, I, I, I said that to all of my team and the ones that we work with. We try to get out there. It's been hard with the pandemic, but quarterly or three times a year, find one of our clients or a local nonprofit that one of us is passionate and go spend a day there, volunteer, learn more about them. But we're always open to that. Like, what is your passion? How do we support that? I think that's gotta be, again, part of your culture, right? Like, make sure that it, whatever's important to your employees is important to you, or even if you are an employee, get your employer to find out what's important to you, because especially right now with how hard talent is to find, if you're a talented person on that person's staff and they don't take that and run with it saying, hey, I would really like to be involved with that, there's almost always a way, even in, in a larger accounting firm, to make that profitable, right? If we can get into in this market and you really like that, learn about it, bring it in, right? That should be something that's jumped on right away. Not only is it going to help them, but it's going to help make you happier, which also helps them, right? As an owner. Yeah.
1: Jeremy, we're going to put your contact details in the show notes. Are you open to having a conversation with people out there that want to talk to you more about the stuff that you're doing?
4: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, either, either way. If you're if you're a nonprofit that needs the financial side, happy to talk to you too. Or if you have, you know, are at a accounting firm and thinking about, hey, I'd like to go on my own and and support the nonprofit sector, I would love to chat with you and I'll tell you all the again 99% good and the 1% bad. Um, yeah, I'd love to love to be in help. Great. It's
1: lovely that you would do that. We're going to finish with a question that we're starting to ask a lot of our guests looking ahead to the future. What would you say are the four or five key skills or attributes that accountants need to separate the good ones from the great? There's a we're entering some tough times, we know that, and accountants they do want to make a difference. So, what skills and attributes do you feel they're going to need?
4: I mean, I think as far as skills with servicing the clients, like the more that you can connect with them on non-business stuff, right? What are their goals? What are their their future aspirations? Where do they want their business to be or their nonprofit to turn into? Um, I think that that is such a huge piece of it going beyond it. Um, and I think that notoriously accountants and, and uh, joke with that, but notoriously accountants aren't really great at making that connection the fact that i encourage our team to do that i think makes us sticky like where we don't lose clients right like we're in there and and just because we care and they care about us and all of that so i think that is one piece i also think especially if you are a owner partner whatever of a firm it's more important to me and i have way benefited more in my own practice um networking for employees versus networking for clients right i think through marketing channels and all that and it may be just cuz of the again the tight labor market but having those connections of employees and getting the people that hey I've made this amazing business, come on join me um that's gotten us to go from from where you know me as a one-man shop to to building out we're at you know a whole bunch of people now um that's rocketed me up there with something if you don't have the trust in the people and the skill set and know all that um I think that really kind of slows down your journey. and then um, I think the last one is just be always learning right I mean that's a cliche. But I, I, I'm i a big one to say, I, I don't want to be the smartest one in the room ever, right? Like, and, and you hear that all the time too, but whatever you can glean, wherever you can figure out, um, you know, I, I didn't think about this, but this sounds really cool. Whatever it's a new field, it's a new uh, source of revenue, whatever that is to dig into that. And if you're passionate about it, there is a way to bring that on and make it again, profitable for you, as well as building your resume, your expertise, into a place that you're passionate about. That's
1: a great list to start with, Jeremy. Thank you so much for your time and your insights today. That's been amazing.
4: Yeah, no, thank you, sir. I really appreciate you inviting me on. This is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with
0: Rob Brown and Martin Bissett.
1: That brings us to the end of another episode of the Accounting Influencers Show. You've listening to the full show that goes out on a Monday featuring top-class interviews with leaders throughout the accounting fintech world. A new segment where we don't just analyze the news but tell you what it means for you and here's what works practical segment for you accounting practitioners to help you raise your game upgrade your skills and serve your clients better thank you for tuning in our 25,000 listeners in 150 countries we're growing by hundreds every week it's the only daily accounting fintech show out there we really appreciate you sponsoring us being with us reviewing us thanking us you our commercial partners you our listeners Remember, you can tune into Saturday's bonus episode as well. We're going through a series right now on the price is right. Tackling that very tricky subject for accountants on how do you price right? How do you price confidently? How do you price in that your clients will value what you're putting in front of them and be willing to pay for that? So loads of great stuff going on. Keep tuning in. Keep sharing it with your friends. Do leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to on. And thank you for tuning in. We'll see you on next week's show. This is the
0: Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett.